0: Hey friends, welcome to another edition of the Law and Gospel Devotional. My name is Eric Sorensen. I'm a pastor at Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, as well as a contributor to 1517 in numerous ways. Thanks for joining me again as we take time each week, usually at least once, to look at God's two words from all of Scripture The way we tend to do this is by taking an upcoming lectionary passage from the upcoming Sunday and then diving a little deeper into it to see how God's two words are speaking to us this week. And so uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive right in, first of all, by looking at all the passages for this upcoming Sunday's uh, lectionary. And uh, if you are part of a lectionary church, then you know, if you're part of a church that follows the church calendar, that this is the last Sunday of Easter. Uh, what we call the 7th Sunday of Easter, Easter 7. And if there's any way that I could sort of sum up what all the passages have in common, it is that the word produces life. The word has power to do something. And of course, the picture I have accompanying this uh, is a scene from the well-known movie, *Goodwill Hunting, in which um, uh, Will's psychologist, Sean, is able to give him a powerful word that literally changes everything. And I... Won't go any further in case there's a few of you out there that may have never seen the movie. But indeed, the word has power and no word has power like the word of God. And so uh, as you dig through the passages, you're going to see passages like Psalm 1, where we're told that the person who meditates on and chew or chews the cud, that's another way of translating or understanding the Hebrew word for meditate, the person who meditates on God's word is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does, he prospers. So you, you get this picture that through meditating, through digging into the word of God, that that leads to uh, a blessed life, ultimately, most importantly, a life of uh, salvation we move on to the passage from the book of acts once again not an old testament passage this week but an early church history passage and really what it shows is that the word propels the church forward in its mission now i i take the i take the position that in this passage where the disciples or the apostles choose another apostle to fill the role of judas's place i take the position that they may have jumped the gun that they may have Um, gone beyond what they were supposed to do. I believe that the actual 12th apostle chosen by the Spirit is in fact Paul the Apostle. But I'm not going to go into a defense of that today. If you want to hear a deeper defense of that, check out our 30 Minutes in the New Testament podcast episode in which we discuss why it is we take that position. But the way they go about doing this in this passage is basically they cast lots, similar to drawing straws, in order to determine who's going to be the next apostle. Again, I could go over reasons for why I think that uh, may have not been the route that they were supposed to go, but nevertheless, it does show that the word propelled them forward in their desire to continue the mission. We move on to the gospel passage for this Sunday, and it's all about the word guarding God's church in their mission. And then as we get to the passage we're going to look at today, 1 John 5, 1 through 15, it's all about how the word creates new people or new creations. That is the big idea and what, what comes from being a new creation, being born anew. And that's really how the passage begins. It tells us that we are, in fact, born of God. And yet what we're going to see as we dive into this passage is, well, something similar to what this little meme here says, which is, some days I can I can conquer the world, other days it takes me three hours to convince myself to shower. We're going to see that even though we are born anew and that we are indeed empowered to do new stuff that it's not so cut and dry when it actually comes to the daily life of the Christian's experience. So let me go ahead and dig into that. First of all, a little context. John writes his first epistle to confront early Gnostic teaching. And to that end, he focuses on two big ideas. Number one, that Jesus really is the son of God, the Messiah, the Christ who came in the flesh. If you know anything about Gnostic teaching, you know that the flesh was seen as inherently bad, that material was evil. John says, no, 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 matter is good, and the ultimate proof of that is the fact that the very Son of God himself, a divine person in the Trinity, chose to take on flesh and dwell among us. And the second thing he addresses, really counteracting the Gnostics, is the need to love our neighbor. And this is in contrast to the Gnostics who basically were living in gross immorality and their whole case was since material is evil, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body and it doesn't really matter how you treat your neighbor, whatever, not a big deal. John says no. And of course, I chose the picture here because Gnosticism taught that what mattered most of all was to have a secret knowledge. That you just needed a secret knowledge, a deeper knowledge in order to understand God. And that deeper knowledge didn't have anything to do with what you did with your lowly body. John says no. You're called to love your neighbor as a new creation of God. So... First, we see the words power to save. If you look at verse 1, the very beginning, John spells it out as clearly as can be. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Well, yeah, it seems like it can't be that easy, but indeed it is that easy. The message of Christianity says that if one believes in Jesus as the Christ, they are in fact a new creation. It's just that simple. But it also goes on to show us that the word, by making us a new creation, by making us born of God, bearing or regenerating us, that indeed this regeneration results in new life and in new behaviors. Again, let's read verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves, uh, everyone who is, uh, excuse me, who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. In other words, Christians ought to love one another. That's what will come as a result of being a new creation. By this, we know that we love the children of God. What does it look like to love the children of God? How do I know if I'm doing it? Well, John says, when we love God and obey his commandments. Now think about what his commandments are. First three uh, commandments, at least in the Lutheran way of dividing the commandments, have to do with one's vertical relationship to God. Talks about having no other gods before the Lord and worshiping Him above and alone. Talks about us making sure that we uh, that we don't um, uh, make idols, that we don't uh, that we make sure to honor the Sabbath, that we don't misuse the name of the Lord God. All of those things are vertical. They have to do with our relationship to God. But then the last seven commandments have to do with our relationship to our neighbor: honoring our parents, not murdering other people, not stealing, not lying, uh, not bearing false witness, not um, not coveting, etc. I'm not being exhaustive here, but you get the point. The idea behind it is that as we follow these commands, this these commands are expressions of how we show love to our neighbor. And John continues, "For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments." And his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Well, if you're a sensitive hearer and you've joined me for any other devotion that we've done here, then you know that Houston, we have a problem because what in the world does John mean when he says God's commandments aren't burdensome? I mean reality is, when we look at the law, it's summarized as loving God with not some of your heart, but with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said as much. And indeed, he says in Matthew's gospel, we are called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So, if the commandments weren't burdensome... Well, it seems that we'd be doing those things with ease. But we don't. We don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And we sure as heck don't do it anywhere near perfectly. So, how do we reconcile these things? How do we reconcile the reality that Paul in Galatians 6 1 talks about loving our neighbor and uses the word carrying burdens that Indeed, there is a burdensome sense to it. How do we deal with this seeming contradiction? Well, I think what's really important here is to get to the insight that Luther had as he meditated on this very thing. Now, I'm not sure if you can see what he's written here, and so I'm going to read it here. But one of the quotes he said, one of the things he talks about in his theology is that we are both simultaneously saint and sinner as Christians. Here's what he says. We are in truth and totally sinners with regard to ourselves and our first birth. Contrarywise, insofar as Christ has been given for us, we are holy and just totally. Hence, from different aspects, we are said to be just and sinners at one and the same time. In other words, what's going to guide us to understand how it is John can say the commandments aren't burdensome is understanding the simul, understanding the doctrine that we are simultaneously just and sinner. Simil Eustace et peccator. Let me go on. Here's the truth. The new man, the new creation, loves the law because the law is good. Therefore, to the new man, it can indeed be said that the law isn't burdensome at all. It's true. The new creation, the saint, says amen and amen to all of God's law. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, that famous chapter where really he's discussing in great detail the tension of being both a saint and sinner, he makes this statement, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, Romans 7.22. I love the law in my inner being, and I desire to do it, he says in that same chapter. I want to do it. But as you know, if you've read that chapter, he will go on to also confess it doesn't always come so easy. More on that in just a second. Here's how Luther describes the new man the saints desires. Quote, Since by faith the soul is cleansed and made to love God, it desires that all things, and especially its own body, shall be purified so that all things may join it, it, join it in loving and praising God. Hence, a man cannot be idle, for the need of his body drives him, and he is compelled to do many good works to reduce it to subjection. Nevertheless, the works themselves do not justify him before God. But he does the works out of a, and here's the way Luther talks about it in his writing, The Freedom of the Christian, which this is what that comes from. Nevertheless, the works themselves do not justify him before God, but he does the works out of a spontaneous love. That word spontaneous is very important. Spontaneous love in obedience to God and considers nothing except the approval of God, whom he would must, whom he would must scrupulously obey In all things. So, this is Luther's view of the new man. The new man, frankly, gladly obeys, wants to obey, desperately wants to serve the neighbor, is always looking for ways to serve the neighbor. But, because we are still in this Body of flesh, or as the Apostle calls it in Romans 7 at the end of the the chapter, this body of death, we are simultaneously saint and sinner. And that, my friends, is what makes the commandments feel burdensome. So going back to Romans 7 again, the really the famous passage, Paul says this, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Famously, he will say throughout that chapter, I do what I do not want to do. And I, it drives him crazy. And he finally ends up crying out, who will save me from this body of death? That, that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. And that which I do want to do, I don't have the power to do it. And I, I thought, you know, he's frustrated. Yes, the Christian life is, is going to be a battle between the saint and the sinner. And we are both always both of those things, saint and sinner. The old man and the new man are wrestling. The flesh and the spirit are battling, Galatians 5 says. And so that's why it feels like a burden because there's a battle going on between the new man that absolutely feels no burden in obeying the law and the old man that wants to cast the law aside and trample all over it. So that's how we can reconcile those two things. It's certainly the case that God will produce works of love for each other and for others through us But indeed, even though for the new man, they're not burdensome for the old man that still needs to be killed day in and day out, that's going to feel burdensome. All right. Nevertheless, there is victory in Jesus. And that's really the thrust of this passage. The thrust of this passage is all about the victory we have in Jesus. Look at what he says. First of all, we're told again, the word brings assurance to us of our salvation, John says it this way, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. Now, real quickly, what is the water and the blood? Well, there's differing opinions about it, but I think the best opinion based on what the rest of scripture teaches is that the water is talking about the very beginning of Jesus's ministry when he is baptized by John, and that the blood is talking about the end of Jesus's ministry when he is crucified. And the reason the spirit testifies to both is because all of it matters. Jesus lives for us. Jesus dies for us every part of it is necessary to save us. And that is what the Spirit is constantly testifying to. One uh, uh, seminary professor used to describe the Holy Spirit as being the sheepish member of the Trinity because he's always pointing to the work of Christ. Indeed, the Spirit is testifying constantly about all of what Jesus accomplished in order to save us. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. What's the testimony that can't be broken? What's the word of absolute promise that's rock solid? You have eternal life in Jesus Christ, the Son. Whoever has the Son has life, verse 12. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Folks, that is the Christian message in a nutshell. The Son brings life. Whoever rejects the Son does not have life. And so what's this? What this means, folks, because the word has promised us and is not pointing us to ourselves, but pointing us always to what Jesus has done. We don't have to wonder about whether we're saved. We don't have to be like the guy in our picture here who's constantly waffling back and forth, wondering if he's lost or saved or saved or lost. No, because of what Christ has done for you, You are saved. You are forgiven. You are a child of God. Indeed, John says the reason he wrote this is to give assurance. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this word, this word creates boldness. Look at what we're told we can do. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. Now, I get immediately what comes to mind. The objection is, well, I've prayed for things that I'm pretty sure are in line with God's will, and yet they haven't come to pass, or at least they didn't apparently come to pass for me. Well, there's a couple things. Number one, set that aside right up front and just acknowledge the kind of access John is telling us we have. We can go boldly to the throne of grace. We who were far off, alienated, unable to come to God now can come with whatever is on our minds. The second thing is we always have to interpret a passage like this in relation to the rest of scripture. And one of the things we're told in the rest of scripture is that, well, we're not always so wise about knowing the ways of God compared to our own ways, as Isaiah talks about, that his ways are higher than our ways. And that's why the Spirit has to intercede on our behalf. As we pray, he takes our prayers and translates them in a way that accords with the will of God. And so we might not always get the things that we want or that we may even think that are good, but nevertheless... God knows what he is doing on our behalf. But the point of this, the point of this is as assured children of God, we go boldly. Just as Jesus says in Matthew's gospel and in the Sermon on the Mount, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on receiving. As he talks about in the parable of the persistent widow, she is lauded because she doesn't stop going. Now, you can easily make that into a law. You can easily make that into something that makes you feel guilty. But it's never meant to be that. It is a gift. You can go constantly to the throne of God and you can go with confidence that he hears you and he knows what's best for you and he will deliver on his promise to lead you. And so as we come to the end of the passage, where do we see the law in the passage? Well, we clearly see it in the exhortations to love God and love our neighbor. That is a good thing. Nevertheless, it is the law and it reminds us of our inadequacy and our imperfections. And of course, we also see the gospel shining through this over and over again. The case John makes is because Jesus has come in the flesh, because Jesus has died for your sins, and because Jesus has risen from the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf, he has forgiven you all your sins, causing you to be born anew. In other words, he has saved you, and he has made you fit for his eternal kingdom. And it is from this new creation, that the Spirit works through the Word to produce loving service to God and our neighbor, oftentimes even when we're unconscious of it. Let me close with a brief illustration of what I mean. The picture I I chose for this uh, slide is a picture of the parable of the sheep and the goats. If you're familiar with it out of Matthew 25, you know that uh, people are pictured as either sheep or goats, and the sheep are, are lauded as being righteous. And why are they righteous? Because they did all sorts of things. They visited uh, the sick, they, they helped the sick, and they fed the poor, and they visited those who were imprisoned. And, and the list goes on and on of all the things they did. And Jesus says, because you did these things, welcome into my kingdom. And so you kind of go, well, that that must teach that it's our works that save us, but not so fast. Because one of the things that's always stuck out to me about that parable is that the sheep are surprised they've done anything at all. As a matter of fact, the question they ask is, when did we do any of that? Folks, I'm telling you, more often than not, God is working through you in the smallest, most seemingly insignificant ways, most of the time that you're not conscious of. And on the last day when you stand before him and you plead only the grace of God, assured that Christ is enough, and he says, you did this and this and this and this, well done, good and faithful servant, don't be surprised if you have the exact same reaction as the sheep did. I don't even remember when I did that. But glory be to God, you did it through me, and you've given me access to heaven. The goats, on the other hand, are those who say, when did we not do that? They assumed that they were doing all the things. And Jesus says, no, 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 you weren't. Because ultimately what settles our standing before God is not our works. What settles our standing before God is his works. And it's his works of salvation for us. And ultimately his works of the spirit that will be uh, produced through us that will bring him all the glory, all the glory so that we will happily lay our crowns before his crown as we see him in heaven. All right, gang, that is it for today. I hope that gives you a sense of what this message, what this uh, what this assurance is all about that we find in 1 John. I pray that you have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. God bless.